Amen. Well, several weeks ago, several of us from the church uh, returned from a trip to Greece. We took a tour following in the steps of Paul on his second missionary journey, and we've been sort of retracing his steps on Sunday mornings here over the past few weeks. And we've been following this map. So several weeks ago, we talked about his time in Philippi. And then the next week, we talked about his time in Thessalonica and Berea. Last week, we talked about his time in Athens and preaching at the Areopagus. And today, we're going to talk about his time in Corinth. And you'll also hear me reference Centria, which is the port just right outside of Corinth, where he left and departed to head back to Jerusalem. Uh, So... Uh, next week, we will be looking at a Christmas text. We'll return to the Gospel of Mark in January, but for today, we are in Acts 18. So if you would please turn there in your Bibles and please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. I am going to read verses 1 through 11, and this is the very inspired Word of God. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid. But go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Let's pray. Father, we've been reminded over the past few weeks that you have acted decisively in space-time history among people. And we're grateful that you've done this as you have brought this good news to us. And uh, I I pray that you would use us to continue this work that you began, uh, to continue to advance your kingdom among us and in us and through us. I pray this morning you will use our time together to motivate us and to equip us to continue to advance faithfully this good news for your glory We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So we have been talking about how the good news started in Israel, this little corner of the Middle East, and spread westward throughout Europe, and and it's reached us today. Uh, By the time you get to the end of Acts, it's already reached Rome. And uh, we've been talking about highlighting principles, lessons, truths that we can gather as we look at these Uh, different ministries in these different cities. And today I want to highlight several more. First of all, Christianity advances in unexpected places. In verse 1, Paul leaves Athens. He travels to Corinth where he meets this couple named Aquila and Priscilla. They are married. We get the sense that they are Christians at the time that Paul meets them. They're already Christians. They've come from Rome. You say, well, how could there be Christians in Rome? This is one of the questions that scholars ask. 
New Testament scholars. How does Paul write a letter to the church at Rome? Where did the church at Rome come from? How did it form? And I think we get a, a little bit of an answer here. It came from people who, who came to Christ, became Christians, and then went to Rome, like Aquila and Priscilla. Who He's from Pontus, which is north of Israel. So I assume they travel to Rome. There's a church there. That's the church that Paul will write to. And um, it says that they had to leave Rome because Claudius commanded all the Jews to leave. And some people have speculated that Paul was originally intending to go to Rome on the second missionary journey, but he's prevented because of the edict from Claudius. And so what does he do? He goes to Corinth instead. Corinth is where he'll spend the majority of his time on the second mission trip. Uh, He'll spend a year and a half there. Every other place he just seems to stay a few weeks, few months, even days in some places. Uh, The only other place where Paul will stay longer than Corinth during his ministry is Ephesus where he'll stay two and a half or three years. And uh, Corinth plays an important role in the story. He'll write two very important letters to them that we still have today in our Bibles, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. And, uh, you know, I I just think it's obvious that, that it's easy to say Corinth is an unexpected place. Corinth is an unexpected place to play a pivotal story, a pivotal role in the story of the gospel. I think we might expect the church at Jerusalem to play a significant role in the story, and it does. I think we might expect the church at Rome to play a significant role. You know, in the scriptures, we just have the letter to Rome. I think we might expect Athens, the church at Athens, to play a significant role in the story, and it really doesn't. We we don't have much. Just Paul preaching the gospel there and then moving on. The church at Corinth, it's interesting. It's kind of unexpected. Uh, In this picture, uh, we do have a picture of Corinth. This is kind of the Agora, the marketplace. And then here is a temple. Of course, there's a temple to a pagan god. This is to the god Apollos. And this is looking from a different perspective at, at the temple to Apollos. And you also see the Acropolis in the background. And you may say, the Acropolis? I thought that was in Athens. Well, the reality is there's an Acropolis in every major city. And, you know, for fortification purposes, they always built it up on the city. And, of course, there's a temple that was built up there. And that temple was built to the goddess Aphrodite, who is the goddess of love. And it's commonly believed that there was a a prostitution cult in Corinth. And it's commonly believed there were a significant number of prostitutes in in Corinth. Uh, I think it's even numbered to be a thousand. And so what's the point? The point is it's it's an immoral city. Uh, It is a sexually immoral city, and it's known for that. There were... There are two ports in the city, and this is uh, me up on the Acropolis taking a picture out at the ocean. So this is one of the ports on the western side. The other port I'll show you a picture of here in a little bit. But port cities, cities where you have a lot of people coming from outside traveling, tend to lend toward immorality in that city. And Corinth is no exception. Uh, There was a phrase, to live like a Corinthian. And everybody kind of hint, hint, knew what that meant, or to Corinthianize something. And I, I think, I'll just point out, I think there's a reason why you don't find too many churches today named Corinthian Baptist Church <laughs> or Corinth Baptist Church. you got Antioch Baptist Church. You know, anybody a former member of Corinth Baptist Church? You know, I don't think so. you got Sunday school classes that name themselves the Bereans. You don't have many Sunday school classes calling themselves the Corinthians. Right? And by the way, if you ever find one, I'm not sure I'd visit it. Right? <laughs> Watch out. Listen to some of the headings of Paul's letter. I like just looking at the headings. Go through a letter, look at the headings, and it gives you a good feel for what's in the letter. 
Uh, 1 Corinthians 5, the heading is sexual immorality. Listen to verse 1. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, church, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. Whoa. Right? 1 Corinthians 8, the, the heading, food offered to idols. Right? This was a dilemma in the church. And you can see how. They have this pagan temple where they go take the meat, they sacrifice it to the false god, and then they come right down here to the marketplace and they sell the meat. And the Christians are wrestling with this question. Or should we eat the meat or should we not? If it's been sacrificed to this pagan god, should we? And some of the Christians in the church say, we're fine with it. Our conscience doesn't convict us about this. Some of the Christians are saying, oh, no, no, this is clearly wrong. We're not to have anything to do with this paganism and worldliness. And Paul writes it to them and tells them you know, kind of how to navigate that touchy situation. 1 Corinthians 10, there's a warning against idolatry. You know, watch out for the idols. Watch out for the pagan gods and the pagan temples. 1 Corinthians 15, they apparently are starting to deny the resurrection of Jesus. And Paul has to write to them and say, if you get rid of the resurrection, you get rid of the whole faith. What are you guys thinking? What are you doing over there at Corinth? Right? And this is a, and a significant town where Paul spends a year and a half and plants an influential church where he'll write influential letters. And it is, it's kind of shocking, Right? If it was Athens, you know, the intellectual city of the world, we might say, okay, it makes sense. It's the intellectual city of the world. If it was Berea, I think that would make a lot of sense to us. Like, stay in Berea. You've got a bunch of noble people. They love God's Word. They're examining the Scriptures daily to see if what you're saying... Like, I think I'd want to spend my time in Berea. Right? I think the Lord's calling me to stay in Berea. Right? Not Corinth. But this is where it's unexpected. God often works in unexpected places. When Whitney and I lived in Fort Smith, Arkansas, we were there for about eight or nine years. Our older kids were younger at the time and still had nap times. And we had this guy, this couple, move across the street from us. And he was a heavy metal drummer. And he looked like a heavy metal drummer. And he would practice his drums every day. His drums, by the way, would sit in his garage facing directly at our house. And he always seemed to practice about the time for our kids to take a nap. So we're trying to lay them down, and all of a sudden you got heavy metal drumming, and we would, I would always wrestle. We would wrestle. Do we say something? Do we not say something? What is, you know, how do you be a kind neighbor and deal with this kind of situation? Well, we befriended them, good people. Uh, we befriended them, developed a relationship with them, and actually got to lead him to Christ, and actually got to uh, baptize him, and he, they joined our church, and he became the drummer at our church. And at the time, I was actually leading the music, and he's the best drummer I've ever played with in church music. Like, he was very sensitive to not wanting to play too loud. And I'd always say, like, play louder, we need more drums here. Right? It was incredible to get to play with him. And today, married, kids, still involved in church, it's one of, it's, it's, it's one of the great highlights of my personal ministry uh, that I'm grateful for. And, you know, it's an example where you say, I, I don't think I would have expected that. I don't think I would have expected a heavy metal drummer living across the street playing drums during my children's nap time for God to use that the way that he did. But I think God delights in taking situations like that and people like that. And so here's the point. Perhaps you feel a little bit like an outsider. Maybe you say, boy, because of my past, because of who I am, because I haven't grown up in the church. I just don't seem to be a normal, typical church type of person. You know, maybe I'm not really sure God could really use me. 
Maybe you just kind of feel on the outskirts. Maybe you kind of see yourself as an unexpected person. I'm not a person that I would expect God to use me. I just want to encourage you this morning from God's Word. You're the very person that God wants to use and would delight to use. He loves taking people who know they are unexpected people. Anybody who thinks they kind of expect it, like, surely God would use me. Look at my pedigree. God says, you're actually the person I don't want to use, right? He loves skipping over those people and using the people that you say, man, I never would have guessed that. And maybe you know someone. Maybe you have a neighbor across the street who's drumming during your children's nap time. And maybe there's a person in your life that you say, I'm not, I'm not sure God could really use this person, right? That's, that's the very person God is wanting to use you to reach them. Or maybe you work with a group of people at work and you just say, boy, these folks are wild. These are a bunch of Corinthians. Well, guess what? Corinthians are the very people where God wants to go plant his church and have his apostles spend one and a half years in order to do ministry among those people. And so Christianity advances among unlikely, unexpected people, unexpected places, places like Corinth. Second, Christianity advances through partnerships. The point I really want to emphasize here is that God doesn't use merely individuals to do great things. He doesn't merely use individuals as lone rangers. There's always a partnership. There's always other people. Maybe they're behind the scenes, but it's always a partnership of people. Notice the partnerships that Paul has in his life. First of all, we have the example of Aquila and Priscilla. Look at verse 3. Because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. So this is the couple Paul stayed with in Corinth. That's very important. That's an important partnership, to have someone who has that kind of facility and lodging. It says they share the same trade. They're tent makers. Tent making would have been important in the ancient world. It's in, in particular a place like Corinth, where you do have so many people coming and going. Corinth had these games, not not the Olympic Games, but the Isthmian Games, which happened every two years. So you'd have athletes coming and competing every two years. And by the way, I think it's no coincidence that Paul will write in 1 Corinthians 9, you know, about run the race so as to win the prize. Imagery they're familiar with. People also came to Corinth for healing. There were springs there that were believed to bring healing. Kind of like historically people went to Manitou Springs, thinking that these waters provided some kind of medicinal healing. You know, that's a a common pattern. You see it in the U.S. Certain cities that are named springs are often places where people went thinking, you know, there's healing here in these springs. And so that happened in Corinth. People went there, traveled there. And, of course, we've already mentioned the two ports. So you just have tons of people coming and going. What do they need? They need housing. They need lodging. They need a tent. Or maybe they have a tent, but they need somebody who can repair the tent. And so Paul and Priscilla and Aquila have this partnership they have a common trade, and they're tent makers. They, they, their, their relationship, though, runs deeper than just making tents together. Look at verse 18 of Acts 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer, and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Centria he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. So first of all, notice the reference to Centria. This is the other port that I mentioned earlier. This is a picture of that port. This is on the east side. So this is the place where Paul, Priscilla, and Aquila get in a boat, and they leave Corinth, they leave Greece, and they head back to Israel. 
Another passage where Centria is mentioned and where Aquila and Priscilla are mentioned is a, a passage that Paul writes to the Romans. Romans 16, 1 through 4. And Paul writes this to the Romans when he's in Corinth on the third missionary journey. So he'll spend a few months in Corinth a second time. This time it's on the third missionary journey when he writes his famous letter to the Romans. But listen to Romans 16, verses 1 through 4. He says, Church at Rome, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sandria. So she's a servant of the church there. That you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Listen to this, verse 3. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. So apparently Priscilla and Aquila are back in Rome at the time that Paul writes this. They're a part of the church at Rome. And Paul says to the church, tell them hello. They've put their necks on the line for me. They play an important role in my ministry. Tell them hello. And he says, I'm sending Phoebe to you. Who's Phoebe? She's a servant at the church at Centria. And a lot of people think she's the one who took the letter for Paul to the Romans. So notice all these people playing very important roles in the ministry. Next, there's Silas and Timothy. Look at verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. So if you remember, Paul and Silas stayed back in northern Greece. Paul went on to Athens and then to Corinth, and he said, I'll meet you at Corinth. And so they now meet up with him, and when they do, it's believed that they bring with them money, money from the churches that Paul has previously planted in Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. And Paul makes reference to this offering, this love offering, when he writes the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 11, 8 and 9. Listen to this. Church of Corinth, I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. So notice the partnership Paul has with the other churches, Church of Philippi. Notice the partnership Paul has with Silas and Timothy, who are collecting money, bringing it, supporting him. Paul says, Church at Corinth, I didn't take any money from you. I made tents when I was with you. And then when the brothers brought the money, I was able to spend my time in ministry, but I never asked any money from you. Notice the partnership. Uh, Finally, there's the the partnership with Titius, Justus, and Erastus. Verse 7. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Many people believe this is the man whose home would be the the home where the church started in Corinth. Titius Justus. And a lot of people think he's referred to in in Romans by a different name, Gaius, but they think his name is Gaius Titius Justus. So listen to Romans 16.23. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Paul's writing the Romans from Corinth, and he says, Gaius says hello. The one in whose house we're meeting as a house church. Romans 16.23, Paul says, Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cordus greet you also. Paul references this man named Erastus, who's the city treasurer in Corinth. And guess what? We saw the name Erastus carved into the stone. And it said, Erastus paid for this street. And so a person named Erastus is mentioned in the Bible 
Paul says that he says hello. He's the city treasurer in Corinth. We go to Corinth and we get to see Erastus' name carved in the sidewalk. Say, Erastus built this. The city treasurer built this. Here's the point. We often focus and give so much attention to Paul, and rightly so. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle to the Gentiles, rightly so. But it would be a mistake to ignore or overlook. He had key partnerships with key people. Churches, people, individuals, men, women. And it's, it's through the partnerships that the gospel advances. Um, I've mentioned multiple times, I'm a pretty big fan of college football. I'm looking forward to bowl season. And I, I like college football personally better than the NFL for several reasons. I'll only mention one here this morning. And, and that is, I like the celebration rule in college football. In the NFL... If a receiver makes a catch and scores a touchdown, he will proceed usually to do some kind of pre-choreographed dance. It's all about him. The attention's all about him. You get a flag for that in college. You can't celebrate by yourself as an individual in college. You've you got to wait till your team gets there, and you can celebrate with your team. And I like that because you've got to wait for the linemen. You know, you've got to celebrate with the linemen. The linemen don't get to score touchdowns usually. Right? When do they get to do their dance in the end zone? Right? They get to, in college football, they get to dance and do their thing with the receiver. It's a team effort, right? There was some guy blocking if a receiver made a touchdown. And it's only right that everybody gets credit, right? Because it's a team effort. It's not just a receiver who should be getting the credit. Uh, and, and the same thing is true in the Christian ministry. When the Christian gospel advances, it doesn't advance merely because of individuals. It advances because of partnerships. It advances because of teams. And I'm grateful. As I look around our church, I see partnerships all over the place. I see people partnering together to do ministry, in particular to do outreach ministry. Some churches have a philosophy of ministry. It's not right or wrong. They have a philosophy of ministry where they do a few things, a few missions, a few ministries, a few outreach events. And, and it's kind of, it's everything. They put all their eggs in that basket. And it's sort of all hands on deck. We're all doing this. This is what we do. Our church has a very different approach in philosophy of ministry. Our church sort of says, we just do everything. Right? We just have stuff going all the time. There's outreach ministry happening all the time. And there's pros and cons with that. I'm not saying it's the right way. I'm not saying it's the wrong way. I'm just saying it's the way we do it. And I'll say there's a lot of upside to it and there's a lot of downside to it. One of the downsides is we can't all do all of it, right? You can't be involved in everything we're doing outreach-wise at our church. It's, it's impossible. And, and that, but they, guess what? That also means I can't. And the ministerial staff can't. So there's a lot of things that happen that we're not involved in. Sometimes we'll drive by the church and witness, say, what's going on there? And I'll say, I have no idea. <laughs> Why is the parking lot full? I don't know. <laughs> is there an event today? I'm not sure. There's an event constantly. Right? So there's, there's ups and there's downs. There's pros and there's cons. This also means we can't promote everything we do. And some people get upset about that. Why don't you promote this more? You can't promote everything. If you promote everything, you promote nothing. Right? And so we have to prioritize. So that means some things don't get mentioned. They don't get promoted. So that's a part of doing as much as we do. Let me just mention the list. Let me just go through a list of things we do. And this list, by the way, we came up with a couple years ago. So there's, there's more things that have been added to it since. And I apologize if I miss one. These are outreach 
you know, missions, missional type of ministries. We do more than that. I'm just focusing on those. Uh, we have couples and individual missionaries we support. Financially, we support them. Uh, we keep up with them. We have people in our church who send birthday notes and keep us up to date with prayer requests. We have 11 of those, 11 couples or individuals. Uh, secondly, we have mission offerings that we take up throughout the year. Lottie Moon Christmas offering we're doing right now. Annie Armstrong uh, supports uh, national missionaries. The, the Lottie Moon supports international missionaries. And Nicey Murphy supports missions and missionaries in Colorado. We have local ministries that we support financially. And we have people from our church who go and partner and serve and give a lot of time. Uh, for example, Springs Rescue Mission, Life Network, Mercy's Gate, Southeast Baptist Pantry. We have mission trips we take. We take an annual trip to Mexico. And we take a try to do once every four years to Ireland. We have outreach ministries at our church that, are, that were specifically created for the purpose of outreach. Vista Kids Preschool, which meets here daily. Uh, Mops. Benevolence ministry. We take up a benevolence offering and help people in need. Building usage. We have churches that use our building. We have ministries that use our building. We are constantly allowing Christian ministries to, to use the facility here. Uh, Christmas Dessert Theater, we're just wrapping up, and that's what these uh, chairs are for and all of this. Uh, Operation Christmas Child, we just wrapped up a week or two ago. Christian Challenge Lunches, we do this once a month and uh, love our Christian Challenge friends who are connected here. Angel Tree Ministry, we are involved in right now, so you can go pick up an angel tree and, and help support that ministry. We have Evangelism Training that happens at our church. We have a prospectus class we're about to offer next semester, and there's others. I'm confident there are some that I'm not mentioning. And uh, people will often have ideas and come to us with ideas of new things they want to do. And we have to politely, nicely say, we can't really add anything to this list. You know, I hope you just hear the list and go, yeah, that makes sense. We can't really do more. Uh, We can't add on to that. Um, but listen, if you have a passion for a particular ministry, by all means, go for it and get involved in it. There's a lot of great ministries in Colorado Springs who are doing great jobs. We like to say we don't want to reinvent the wheel. If there's somebody doing it better than us, let's go partner with them and, and let them lead and let's just get involved. And so it'd be a great thing to do it, but not just by yourself. Partner with other people. Partner with people in your Sunday school class. Recruit them. Say, hey. We, we got this great thing we're doing. Would you guys like to come partner with us? And the best scenario, the healthiest, best, the, the scenario I would get the most excited about is if you and your, your group, your small group, your Sunday school class, who you're already praying with, studying the Bible with, getting to know, holding each other accountable, if you kind of took on one of these outreach ministries we already have in place. We, we need help with these. Not all these are just thriving and blowing and going. Some of them are struggling. And so we can't, while they're struggling, we can't add new ones, right? We need, we need some life. We need some breath. We need some fresh air. So maybe the Lord will lay on your heart. Who are your people, your friends, you are partnering with together in ministry, getting involved in ministry for the sake of seeing the gospel advance? There's a lot of opportunities around here. You gotta, you gotta come. You gotta get involved. Roll your sleeves up. Keep your eyes open, ears open. Look at the needs that come along, and then just jump on it and get involved. And if one of them doesn't turn out to be your thing, try something else. Right? A lot of opportunities. But here's the point: 
The Christian faith, the Christian gospel advances, not just merely through individual lone rangers, but through partnerships. Third, Christianity advances because of the Lord. Now, when Paul came into the city of Corinth, he was self, he, he admitted himself he was scared. He was timid. 1 Corinthians 2 3, he says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. When he came to the city, he said, I was scared, church. Right? Now, that makes sense. He had just been at Philippi where he'd been beaten and imprisoned. And the only way he escaped was through an earthquake. And then he went to Thessalonica where a mob ran him out of town. And so he goes to Berea and he gets a quick break. But then the folks from Thessalonica come, the mob comes and run him out of Berea. And then he goes to Athens and he deals with the intellectual snobs there. And they say, you know, you're just, you're a babbler and you don't know what you're talking about. And then he leaves and he shows up at Corinth. And he's like, what's going to happen in Corinth? You know, what what are they going to do to me? He says, I was scared. Interestingly, God speaks to him. Listen to verses 9 through 11. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. First of all, notice that God says to him, Don't be afraid. That's one of the things God always says to people when He calls them to do something important and difficult. Don't be afraid. Fear not. I'm with you. I think about the angels appearing to Mary and Joseph separately, individually. You're going to have a baby. You're going to name him Jesus. He's going to be the Savior of the world. What? We don't even have him, not even married. Don't be afraid. I am with you. The angels appear to the shepherds. Right? Don't be afraid. That's the theme. That's the message. Don't be afraid. I have a, a plan. I have a mission for you. And that's what they say to God. That's what God says to Paul. Don't be afraid. I'm with you. Don't be silent. Open your mouth and speak. Verse 10. No one will attack you to harm you. Now I want you to point out. God doesn't say you won't experience any opposition or pushback at all. He will experience opposition. He will experience pushback. In fact, this next picture is a picture of us standing at the tribunal in Corinth where Paul is brought on, on charges. So you, read, you keep reading verses 12 through 17. Look at verse 12. But when Gaio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. The word tribunal in Greek is the word bima. This is believed to be the bima. In Corinth, the place where when cases come up, they take it to the city leaders and, and, the, and the case is heard. And so Paul's case is heard. And by the way, that happens a lot with Paul. He gets brought to the city Bema. And there's a case brought against him. You know, he's raising a bunch of ruckus and he's causing a riot. And every time he's found not guilty. And that's one of the major themes of Luke and Acts. The Christian Christianity is not anti-Rome. Christianity, good citizens, legal, law-abiding citizens. So don't throw them in jail. It's one of the messages. They keep getting out. They, they, they're tried and then they get out. They're found not guilty. And that's one of the themes. So, so God is not promising, Paul, you won't experience any opposition at all. You will experience opposition. And, and God's not even saying, I'll spare your life. Paul is going to be killed because of taking the gospel out. Right? So this is not health and wealth gospel. Everything's going to be fine. This is for now, while you're in Corinth... Open your mouth. I have a plan. And God says, I have many people in this city. Think about that. 
Think about how encouraging that is. Think about how motivating that is. I want to go do evangelism because God has many people in the city. See, the sovereignty of God doesn't discourage evangelism. The sovereignty of God doesn't discourage missions. Paul doesn't say, well, he's got, God's got people in this city, so therefore I don't need to do anything. No, he has people in the city, therefore you've got to go open your mouth and tell them so they'll believe and they'll become his people. Right? And the same is true with us. It's the same mindset. Does God have people in this city right now who are not yet Christians? Yes. Does he have people in your neighborhood right now who are not yet Christians? Yeah. Should you say, well, if he's got people, if they're his people, if they're chosen, then no need for me to do anything. No. That's the opposite. God is sovereign. He has people. Therefore, you just be faithful to open your mouth and watch how many people come. And when they do, you can know these are the people he was talking about. These are the people who are his in the city. Right? In 1 Corinthians 3, 7, Paul says to the Corinthians, I planted, Apollos watered, but the Lord gave the growth. The Lord is the one who grows it. The Lord is the one who does it. The Christian gospel advances because of the Lord. And when you look at it historically, from a historical perspective, that's the only thing that makes sense. How else do you explain this message about a crucified man which starts in the little corner of the Middle East. How do you explain that message sweeping like wildfire across Europe all the way to where we are in Northern America and now continuing to advance throughout the world? How do you explain that apart from it happens by the Lord? Right? I planted, He watered. The Lord is the one who gives the growth. The Lord is the one who does it. And I think it's a good reminder to us today. God is still in charge. He's still up to the same thing. He's still interested in the same thing, which is what? Taking this message and advancing it to as many people, as many nations as possible and doing it through us. And our, our responsibility is what? Just be faithful. Just be faithful to the message. Just be faithful to open your mouth. Right? First of all, you've got to be faithful to respond to the message. So I urge you to respond by hearing and believing. The, 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 the angels that appeared to the shepherds said that, that appeared to Mary and Joseph said they were going to have a baby who was going to save the world. And guess what? They did have a baby, and he did save the world. He grew up and lived a life of obedience, perfect obedience in our place in order to go to the cross and die a death in our place. And God accepted his sacrifice, and God raised him from the grave. And today, right now, Jesus is reigning as the king from the right hand of God, and he's reigning through his church. The church is advancing right now. The gospel is advancing. And it's happening by Christ, by the Spirit of Christ, and it's happening through the world. Make sure you are responding by trusting in Him. Make sure you're responding so that you're prepared for the day when He returns again. How do I I respond? Respond with repentance and faith. Hear it and believe it. And then, for those of you who are trusting in Christ... You understand the power of this message. You understand that God's still very much alive and very much at work and still very much wants to make himself known. So get involved in advancing this good news. Look for unexpected places, unexpected people, maybe a neighbor across the street you'd never expect. The gospel advances in unexpected people. It happens through partnerships. You can't do it by yourself. You'll get tired. You'll burn out. You have gifts. There's gifts you don't have that others have and you need them You need others. You can't advance the gospel by yourself. You need partnerships. You need accountability. It's more fun as a team, right? And finally, you can only do it because of the Lord. You can only do it in His strength. That's why it requires prayer. That's why it requires trusting in Him. Christianity advances because of the Lord. Let's pray.